Welcome back to the Bull, the Bear, and my brother's chair. We are your hosts, Brian Lucius, and I also have the one and only Nate Lucius. Nate good morning, Lucius Brian. joining. Good morning. Good morning. Got a good show today, Nate. Who do we got? Uh, I don't know if you know this, but I'm a massive fan of all things Navy SEAL related. Yeah. So, like, I watched a lot of documentaries on Navy SEALs. I like Navy SEAL movies. Marty Strong, who's going to join us today, is a former combat-decorated Navy SEAL who is also now an author, speaker, uh, relating things in business to the things that they learned as Navy SEALs and SEAL teams, which I couldn't be more excited to not only hear what he has to say, but to have him on and to speak with him as well. I love a good buds when they, I think it's called buds, right? Yeah. When they go through buds. Like oh, those, I'm going to ask him about Those that. documentaries are fascinating. I know that, you know, I, I'd had an initial call with him and I can't, he's mentioned that there's like, let's just say 200 people that show up, right? And he, Buds is like a six week course or whatever it is. And then there's the infamous hell week, which is like week four or five. It's a little ways into it. They don't start you there. And it's something like within the first like week or two, you lose half the people who are like, Hell Week didn't kill them. They're just right. like, I have no business being here. And then they go through and narrow that 200 or whatever that group is down to like 35. And those are some of the. And these guys didn't start like you or I and just no, come out of there. That's uh, what I was saying. Those are some of like the baddest dudes coming in there and girls coming in there to like start. That tells you how tough and physically and really mentally demanding. And some of the things I know, and as uh, you read his books or listen to him speak, he talks about is conditions changing for SEAL teams constantly, whether they're in battle or wherever it may be, it's constant change, constant adapt, adaptation, constant moving, which is, you know, similar to business. I'm going to guess that their constant changes are different than ours. Most likely. <laughs> so well, we'll good. bring him on in a bit here. But let's start, Nate. What do you got? Uh, All right, I'll this we got Parrish on. This is not a... I think we're going to talk a little social media today, perhaps. Yeah. Um, this is not a bearish on this particular platform, but I'm going to use this as an example. Nice disclosure. LinkedIn. Okay. I understand LinkedIn makes some sense, whatever. However, when you got salespeople, right, the way we grew up selling, which has changed, I get it, is you just, you pick up the phone, you call, you email, blah, blah, blah. I get it. It's changed. However... Every message I get, you know, people connect with me and I don't go on LinkedIn a lot, maybe once a week and I connect with people. Sounds good. And then they hit you with, Hey, thanks for the connection. I'd really like to connect. We have a lot in common or something like this. <laughs> yep. Sounds good. And then they hit you with uh, an automated uh, message that's not different to me than it is probably to anybody else. No. It says, Hey, it looks like you're in the technology field or investment or whatever. I got one uh, yesterday that said, you know, interest rates are up. The market's more volatile. We're wondering how you're handling that. And I'd like to have a discussion with you about it. Sounds it's riveting. Like, what are we going to discuss and what potential value? Like, do a little research. Give right. me something like, hey, I noticed you guys run X. We've been finding that people that run this, like, this is a valuable thing. It doesn't do that. They hit you like three or four or 20 times and I don't respond. Or sometimes at the bottom, those little messages come and says like, no, thank you. Occasionally I'll throw one of those in. But they, there's no, I would bet one out of 50 actually email you something like pertinent to you or actually call you. It's probably one out of a hundred that call you. Yeah. So it's like people spend all day long 
salespeople spend all day long messaging people on LinkedIn. Oh, yeah. Just message, message, message. And they're just as a, round as an and round. For it's like, what in the, like, <laughs> is somebody paying you and you're calling that prospecting? Like, I, I don't get it. I've even had some that say, I'm just following up on the phone call I left. Yeah. The message I left. And you didn't leave me a voicemail. Your boss thinks you did. Right. But you didn't. Or it's like, I'd like to get you a white paper on <clears throat> how, you know, digital technology is really changing and how we can really revolutionize your business. Like that may be true, it may not, but you know nothing about me. Or I'd like like to set up some time for a virtual cup of coffee to see if we yes. can mutually benefit each other. I'm going to guess that you're There's not looking no mutual, for me to benefit you right. other than signing no up for your service. No one's come to me and like, hey, I'd like you guys to do this for us. <clears throat> so anyway, I'm bearish on the fact that people think that like you can just do that and continue to hit 100 people a week and maybe one or two of them respond. I don't know, but... So far, I'm I'm over. It's it's also just it seems like a place where people announce their latest job or promotion or whatever it may be. Yes. And then there's also two schools of thought on work ethic on there. Of you'll either have one person that posts and is like, "You need to work 24 hours a day, seven days a week," or the other one who's like, "I shouldn't have to work that much, and neither should you." And then right. they banter back and forth on which is correct. So anyway, I get the platform. I understand <clears throat> what it is, but the way that people go about it, I just I think people are missing the boat. The prospecting on there is an interesting one for me, the advertising or whatever it may be. So anyway, that's my uh, that's my bearish for the well, day. I was going to go with a similar route, but different, because I'm bullish on this. And you look at, take social media platforms in general. Now, I'm not really speaking about LinkedIn. I'm more an Instagram guy. I don't do much Facebook, but Instagram, they're all the same platforms. And some of the entrepreneurs of today, and they have some system or something that they're selling or something that they're advertising. And I do, you could call them influencers if you wanted to, which they probably are, whatever it may be. But the the following that they have gathered on social media, the posts that they do make that are motivational, inspirational, whatever it may be, and the traction that some of these folks do get on social media to point it and monetize that to their platform or another platform, I do find quite fascinating. I think it's given a lot of people who who haven't had a voice traditionally or haven't had a budget to compete in a certain industry, a real platform to to get out there, tell their story and generate some real businesses from uh, from social media alone. So although some of them are kind of annoying, I think it's given a lot of new businesses. Uh, I would definitely say clothing is one that <coughs> stuck me on Instagram a bunch yeah. where you used to have to be For a sure. reputable brand in Nordstrom. Now you see this thing on Instagram enough times and pretty soon you're hitting the buy button and off they go. Yeah. And those social media people, like they add some value. You watch them and whether they speak directly to your business or not. Yeah. And then once, like if one of those people were going back to my LinkedIn example, if one of those people were to reach out and be like, hey, this is how we've had it. We think, yeah, sure. Happy to talk. But the cold message out of the blue, it's like you got to add a little value, which a lot of people do on LinkedIn or on Instagram or whatever. But uh, I feel like adding value and then reaching out is probably more important than we just help the old businesses cold reach out. scale and generate revenue. Oh, that's we can specific, help you scale. Joe. <laughs> yeah, so a little, little white paper. <clears throat> so I do think that social media is, I mean, it's definitely here to stay. I think a lot of our, you know, a lot of the advisors we work with, a lot of the businesses that we that we know that we invest in, things like that, are certainly leveraging social media a lot more at a fraction of the cost of some of the old traditional mediums out there. Am I a huge social media person? I wouldn't say I'm huge, but 
but it's been effective for making me purchase and find and do I would and agree. follow things. So yep. that's been good. Well, cool, Nate. With that, I'm going to take Marty today since I couldn't be more excited to talk to him and get his thoughts on how Navy SEALs' uh, attitudes apply in today's business. So with that, you get on out of here and we'll bring Marty on. All right. Well, I do have Marty Strong on the podcast with us today. And Marty's been a leader and business consultant for decades now, first as in uniform as a combat-decorated Navy SEAL and then in commercial business. Uh, Marty is a thought-provoking writer. He's a speaker, guest expert. He's got over 350 appearances on national cable TV and hundreds of radio and podcast interviews to his credit. And he is the author of Be Nimble, How the Creative Navy SEAL Mindset Wins on the Battlefield and in Business. Marty, I appreciate you coming on today. Thanks for having me, Brian. Hey, first and foremost, thank you very much for your service. Definitely appreciate all you've done. Thanks. Thank you very much. So good. Well, we'll get into the business portion of it, but I'm, I'm, I'm always have been, been, had the, a ton of admiration and respect for the Navy SEALs in general. I just think that what they, what they're able to accomplish to even become one is beyond impressive. But if you kind of take us back before we get into the business side, what, what attracted you to the Navy and into the SEAL team? Well, the attraction was I needed to get out of Nebraska. <laughs> Where they're used to and, dealing with lots of water, right? <laughs> well, I, I, I was a competitive swimmer ah, uh, okay. for six years in, in middle school and high school. But I, uh, I mean, two other guys decided we were going to join the Marine Corps to get out of Nebraska. We had the same strategic aim. And we went to the local recruiter on a Sunday and there were the Marine Corps guys. They're all in their dress blues and medals and everything. And they showed us some some footage of what the training was like. And I realized that the uh, backpacks, the guys in the, in the presentation were carrying were about the same weight as me, about 125 pounds. Sure. So I chickened out and snuck off to the bathroom. And on the way there, I bumped into the Navy recruiter who gave me his card. So of the three of us, one, one joined the Marine Corps, just did four years. The other one also you know, decided not to join the Marine Corps. And I ended up calling that number and joined the, the Navy. So I, uh, hit boot camp about five, six days after I turned 17 mm-hmm. and, uh, eventually ended up in seal training out in California. <clears throat> sure. And now seal training tell most people are probably aren't super familiar with seal training. They hear the word buds or, uh, hell week. I believe that it is. What does seal training entail? Well, the, the basic training, the basic underwater demolition school buds is in Coronado, California, basically San Diego Harbor. And it's it's varied in, in length over time since the nineteen early 1960s, but essentially it stays right around five to six months in duration. And it is a basic course, but the primary role of that course is to select the best candidates to go on to more advanced training and become SEALs. So the the crucible of all of that, the the primary selection gate is the first nine weeks, which is the, the whole thing's broken into three different phases. So the first phase period is about nine weeks and around the fifth or sixth week, and depending on when in history you look back, they've changed it a couple of times, is the infamous uh, hell week. So mm-hmm. you're basically looking at a pipeline that starts with around 500 candidates that are screened for a lot of different attributes, IQ, different um, character traits that, that they don't have any 
legal issues, they have perfect eyesight, and that they have to pass a physical PT test, push-up swimming, things like that. And that ends up culling down to a class size of around 120 to 130. So you go from 500 to 120 to 130. That's what starts day one of that first phase. Usually by hell week, you're, you're half your class, class is gone. Mm-hmm. So that first four or five weeks, you wean out a lot of uh, people that decided they, they made a mistake. And then, then you go hell through hell week and you lose about half the class again. So typically you come out of hell week with about 30 ish, um, guys that, uh, have pretty much proven to themselves more than the instructors that they have what it takes to, to uh, make it through a lot of adversity. Most of it's physical, but the point of the physical is to create psychological and emotional stress to force them to make a decision about what, what they really want in life and whether they really think they have a handle on their own self-motivation because in buds, they don't, they don't motivate you. They're not trying to get you to pass or to get you to win. Mm-hmm. They're just setting up these obstacles and then watching you and all these safety, of course, safety parameters and everything. But they're just basically wearing you down, mm-hmm. you know, with carrying logs, doing push-ups, running on a soft sand beach, swimming in the ocean, paddling boats, you know. And I'm talking about for hours and hours and hours in each of those cases to just get you to a point where you start to have this discussion in your head mm-hmm. about the mistake you think you just mm-hmm. made. <laughs> And it's all volunteer, so you know they can walk up. The Navy doesn't have. There's no retribution if you if you quit, mm-hmm. and they they know the procedures. They're taught that in day one. They just walk up, say, "I don't want to do this anymore. I'm going to quit." Mm-hmm. A couple of counseling sessions with some of the instructors, and if you still feel that way, you uh, you're out of the program. Mm-hmm. Okay, and you've obviously got you know you you mentioned you start with 500 people and 250, you know, pretty quickly to say, oh, maybe I shouldn't be here." But I got to assume the other 250 that go in there are, you know, they've been IQ tested. They're smart enough to be there. They're obviously have made it through several weeks. They're, they're coming from the Navy. They're, I would imagine in fairly decent physical shape. So it becomes the mental part, I guess, is where, what you're, what you're saying as well as that discussion in your head. What, what is it about that before we transition to business also, but where, where does the mental part become so challenging? So it is a mindset. And, and it is also a state of mind. They're kind of two things, I think. Mindset is basically the way you set yourself against the universe to try to move forward and achieve whatever you want to achieve. And if you get knocked down, it's mindset that gets you back up off the ground to keep moving. A state of mind is is basically your way of, of coping and handling what the universe throws at you at any given time. So when you're going through that kind of training, the people that have psychological resilience and and they don't learn that it's not something that's a gift or a training event at at seal training it's something they had when they showed up so it may have been they went through a a tough divorce family kind of scenario they may have they may have worked really hard and been under some harsh task masters uh in their teens working places and learned a certain kind of work ethic a certain kind of stick-to-itiveness but the way they show up they have it in them or they don't Mm -hmm. so those people when things are getting tough and things are, are, are getting uh, difficult and you know, their, their muscles are sore and they're tired and they're putting one foot in front of the other. Those people are actually driving the narrative in their head, not listening to some other narrative in their head. They're not listening. They're proactively saying, yeah, I can do this. They can't, they can't stop me. I'm just going to get through today. I'm just going to get through this, this next training evolution. And that's a different kind of person. So 
that's the mindset and kind of state of mind that came to the training and our selection kind of melts away the outer exterior of the way the normal world has had them um, interface with the normal world mm-hmm. and, re- and reveals to them as much as us that they have this other special characteristic. And that is essentially the raw material that we go forward with to turn into actual SEAL combat warriors, operators. Got it. Now, obviously, you know, as you transition into business, some of those, you mentioned physical things that get put in your way during SEAL training, be it the cold or water or rowing for seven hours, the physical things get at your mental state quicker. In in my business, it's 72 degrees in here. <laughs> my legs might need to stretch. What types of things do, how do you equate that when you talk about the Navy SEAL mindset on the battlefield and in business, how do you draw those two parallels? Because one would say, hey, you've had it way worse than I ever have. <laughs> All right. So, well, what we didn't talk about in the selection process, which you'll see once I say it, what, where the connection is, all those evolutions and all those things that I said aren't necessarily known to the students. And there's a lot of surprises and a lot of switching schedules. And you take them out for a, for a four mile run and they end up going on a 14 mile run. Mm-hmm. And there's, we're going to go into the classroom for the next two hours. And next thing you know, they're out in, in PT formation for the next two hours. So you're switching things up and you're constantly changing the outcome of the reality they projected. So they projected, oh, I'm going to be sitting in this classroom and everything changes. Mm-hmm. So when you think about business and you think about the kind of mindset you have to have in business, in the, whether you're in business, running a business, or you're investing in businesses, that happens, especially nowadays, especially in the last, say, 10, 15 years with the speed of change, mm-hmm. that happens all the time. It doesn't have to be a black black swan event like a pandemic. Right. It could just be, you know, somebody over in, in Europe decided to do something with their interest rates and suddenly part of your portfolio collapses and you're like, what, <laughs> you know, or, you know, your largest, you know, the threat when I was managing money, one of your largest clients just calls you up and says, man, Marty, I love you like a brother, but my nephew just got out of college and I'm giving all my money to him because he just went to Merrill Lynch. You know, you're like, <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. These are just these outlying asymmetrical attacks on your reality and your projected, you know, plan for life or for business that come out of the blue and you have to figure out how to deal with them. So as you know, whether it's you're a senior business leader, whether you're a founder, owner, operator, you know, or you're investing in businesses Mm -hmm. that creates stress because it's the unknown and the unknown is going to hurt you, but you don't know what that is. So you don't know exactly how to prepare so there's a whole lot of risk mitigation, a whole lot of contingency planning around, you know, your clients, your business, your, your, uh, your employees, your key employees, your key leaders, and you do as much as you can, but you're not going to survive in business. If you don't get that same mindset that we were trying to, you know, pull out of and, and reveal in that basic seal training, which is, you don't have control of the future. You don't have control of everything. And when it happens, you can't just crawl, you know, in the fetal position and sit in the corner or right. hope it all just goes away. Right. It's not going away. We really are going to run 14 miles and, and it's just going to happen. So, you know, suck it up. So mm-hmm. you take that in the seal community 
and it just keeps escalating as you get more into uh, intermediate and advanced training. Mm-hmm. The scenarios are actual combat scenarios. They're not carrying a log or a boat or whatever, but it's for the same thing. It's sure you're out, out there for four or five days, you know, freezing on a mountaintop, uh, 300 miles no- north of the Arctic, Arctic Circle, and your helicopter is supposed to show up. And then they call you up and say the helicopter got shot down. You need to move another day's movement for a secondary extract. They do that all the time with special ops guys. Mm-hmm. You, you eventually get to the point where you don't believe you're ever going to get picked up. And then you get to this. <laughs> really? You just go, okay, you know, eventually, it's just gonna, one day, we're going to be, yeah, we're going to be on, you know, Mount Doom for the rest of our lives. And we're going to, you know, meet somebody and create a family of, of people <laughs> up here in the top of the earth. And they're never, ever going to come get us. So you just have to have, and there's a lot of sense of humor involved in that, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something else that a lot of SEALs have which would be really good for people in business to have and to evolve if they don't already have it. Because when you're surrounded by people with a good sense of humor and you see these, these reverses and these, these, you know, these crisis moments in, you know, sure they're crisis, there's downside to it, but it's also kind of funny because, you know, it, it, it just, you have to look at the, you have to look at the light side of it for a second mm-hmm. and cheer everybody up and then say, okay, so what are we going to do about it? Right. Roll your, roll your sleeves up. Let's make this thing happen. And that, then you're back into a mindset thing. Reset the table, reset the, the game board, make it happen, execute, prepare for the new normal. And then you hunker down with a new mitigation, risk mitigation plan. And then you wait for the next right hook to hit you. How, how quickly or what are some tips? Cause you know, it's easy in a scenario, like we're going to run four miles and I'm like, man, one more mile left. And they're like, all right, turn here. We're going 10 more at some point you're naturally going to not be happy with the change of direction of something. <clears throat> how, how is, how does one recognize that they're going into that sense of negativity and then what are their next steps to overcome it and get moving forward? Well, at buds, they either quit or they just slow down and fall way behind. <laughs> <laughs> but if you think about it as a metaphor, the same thing happens in business. Mm-hmm. I don't care what business you're in. I mean, right. It, you can just keep being hit and hit and hit. And the pandemic is a pretty good, a pretty good uh, example yep. of how much people maybe can take or how much they can't take. So business by itself in normal times is always difficult. Mm-hmm. If, if you have to go out and find your clients, like I did when I was managing money one at a time, mm-hmm. it's difficult. It's hard to see that you're ever going to make it when you, you know, you look, you wake up on a Tuesday and you've got four, four accounts you're like oh how am i going to do this right Right. and there's a there's a point where my peers that went through the training with me when i first started in that in that industry they just started dropping off we had about 42 people in the original training class and two years later i think we had seven so that's not buds training that's not seal training that's investment advisor kind of related training Mm -hmm. and then experience because that was tough too in its own way. So I think what happens is people in any, in any, you know, walk of life have, they have to get to a point where they say, I either like doing this and I enjoy doing this. And I think I can get past this rough patch and then I'll continue to have a, you know, a good life and enjoy doing what I'm doing. Or I really don't like doing this. I don't want to do it anymore. And then they, have to either slow down or quit either have right. to back off their commitment or they have to just say, I'm going to go do something else with my life. Got it. Now you also talk a lot about velocity of work. What's, what's kind of, give me a, give us a kind of overview on velocity of work. 
so I make a distinction in, in be nimble between three factors. And I, I, I don't know where I picked up this uh, labeling. Years ago, I did this. And I had three. That's volume of work, velocity of work, and complexity of work. Mm-hmm. What I noticed was some people, you think of it like an air traffic controller. An air traffic controller is probably very proficient at complexity of work mm-hmm. and has to be fairly fairly capable at the velocity of work. Mm-hmm. And then when they get squeezed, it's when the volume is added. Mm-hmm. So if there's you know enough planes, but not too many planes, and they're all coming in on schedule, so you can't stop that. That's the, that's the speed of the workload coming at you. Mm-hmm. And all of the interactions between the planes and your instructions and the weather and what runway you're going to go to, that's the, that's the uh, complexity of it. So if you want to overload an air traffic controller, it's he, he or she understands the complexity part and has a brain that works that way. Mm-hmm. You overwhelm them with volume. Mm-hmm. You take them from 10 to 20 to 30 aircraft trying to get into, into an air, airport. And that's where they start to break, break down. That's when the wheels start to wobble. And everybody else has got that same kind of capability, I think, in those three zones. Mm-hmm. So if, if you can handle volume, as long as it's simple work, great. If you can handle complex, but you got plenty of time to do it, so that you don't have um, the work coming across your desk and has to be completed, say in, in you know one hour, just mm-hmm. to, to standard, that's fine. But what companies do, especially when they're trying to operate lean organizations, mm-hmm. which has been all the rage here for the last decade, they multitask everybody. They give everybody collateral assignments. They put everybody on project teams, so everybody's just scatterbrained in their functions. Whatever job description they originally hired for mm-hmm. probably doesn't look anything like what they're doing a couple years later, especially if that company is scaling and growing right. or evolving, you mm-hmm. know, changing its product line, whatever. And in the book, I try to say that, you know, this is the way you look at people. This is the way you do job descriptions. This is the way you evaluate these job descriptions and the workload and work capacity, competency, performance standards, et cetera. But you have to do it on a regular basis because if you're, changing their world you're adding more velocity or more volume and more complexity than you hired them to handle mm-hmm. even the best employee in the world is going to fail right mm-hmm. so that's that was the point of that that particular observation nope i like that and i think it's a good thing to look at of is it the volume is it the velocity or is it the complexity that's stressing this person department team whatever it is out so i thought or that leader. was a, right or leader <laughs> or leader yeah. right yeah how do you uh how do you, let's, let's go on that leader thing for, for an example, obviously, you know, some people are, are, can move to the, I got a problem to problem solving quicker. If you have a team of people, you might have some that are slower to make that leap. What does a good leader do in business, in SEAL teams to make sure that they can get everybody on the same page as quickly as possible? So in a SEAL team, you have the benefit if you're a leader of, having the gift of about $2 million of training and, you know, highly selected, you know, personnel that are handed to you. If somebody breaks a leg, you go down the hallway and you say, I need another advanced communicator. I need another 18 Delta medic. I need, and they just pop up like a Pez dispenser. (laughs) Not like, you know, not, no, no parallel whatsoever in the commercial world. You know, (laughs) it's true. It's, it's, it's that easy. And, the difficult part of being a SEAL leader is that they are so superior in so many ways and they're so intellectually engaged 
I mean, p- people look at them in the, in the movies and they don't really understand how smart, you know, the IQ level of these guys. And they're questioning the leadership all the time. They're mm-hmm. questioning every plan, every step in the plan, every every, you know, bit of equipment that, that, that the leader says, maybe we should take this. So what you do is you basically try to galvanize them as your 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 uh, solution design team. Mm-hmm. No, no rank, all the enlisted guys, you know, everybody has a say, everybody's got an input and you figure out a way to facilitate, uh, facilitate all that so that the best ideas bubble up. And as a leader, then you kind of collect them, put them up on a board, start to stretch them out into a, a plan of action. And eventually you get to the point where you, you say, okay, pencils down, we've run out of time. This is what we're going to do. And we either get a chance to rehearse or we don't in business. The only thing you can do as a leader, if you just step into the leadership position, one, you have to evaluate all the people that are, that are your subordinate leaders, your direct reports. There may or may not be anybody that has that kind of engagement point of view, that, that kind of mental, that mental uh, state because mm-hmm. businesses in the United States beat people down into a uh, risk intolerance mode. So by the time you've risen up to be a, a manager, you're really not being rewarded for taking risks, taking chances, telling your boss, maybe that's not the right idea. Sure. (laughs) So what you do is you become very hesitant to express it and your mind kind of shuts down and thinks more about job security and more about risk mitigation. Right. Mm -hmm. So that doesn't mean they can't do it, that they don't have the capacity to do it. So part of your inventory is to first look at it and meet with all of them and, and figure out what their personalities are like, look at their backgrounds. Do they have anything in their backgrounds before that might indicate that they might have a sense of, um, intelligent curiosity and, and the ability to be creative and thinking. And then if they don't, then you have to start figuring out a way to mentor and train them. I like scenario based training. You just, you set up a business case, you, you have them walk through it and you, you have everybody pitch in and you, you facilitate the, uh, the process and you don't blame anybody for not being right or blame anybody for not having all the answers. Mm-hmm. And after a couple of iterations, they realize the boss isn't looking for somebody to blame or somebody to hold accountable. Sure. In, in that in that way mm-hmm. what, what the boss is looking for is insights and innovation and creativity and curiosity and intellectual intellectual humility mm-hmm. come in there and just say i don't know but i'm going to figure this out the other thing you can do in business is make sure that your human resources department talent acquisition whatever you have human capital management has a profile of that type of person first at the senior leadership then middle management because it'll all trickle down if you get if you get all them in the right position mm-hmm. and say, look, I don't care if they came in, they came from a great school and then they went to this, you know, name uh, corporation before they came to us. We also need to know if they have all these other capabilities and all these other, I guess, capacities for expand expansion and enlightenment. If they don't, then we're just hiring an apparatchik. We're just hiring, you know, you know, a, a tool to, mm-hmm. to put in the to put in the right spot. So that's, that's my advice to anybody out there. It's not as easy as having somebody hand you a $2 million <laughs> superhero. Choose from here. <laughs> but but um, it can be done. And I know other special operators, and, and, and I know a lot of people that were never in special ops. Maybe they were in, in sports, or they were just raised this way. Mm-hmm. And they've figured out ways to, to make their, their organizations, uh, their teams of leaders, and, and everybody below those teams of leaders, more engaged and more and more innovative in the same way. Very good. Good. And now two, two final questions coming up on time here. I want to be respectful of your time too, is, 
You mentioned pandemic, but obviously if you look at business today and you've, you've consulted with numerous businesses, been in business, what is, what is the one thing that you think that has been lost in business, be it pandemic, be it the shifts in uh, generations coming through? What do you think is the one thing that's lost or one thing that you don't like the direction things are headed? And then vice versa, what are you most excited for the way things are headed? Well, I really have two answers to the first, the first uh, question. So my second book, Be Visionary, comes out in December this year. And, and the subtitle is Strategic Leadership in the Age of Optimization. Mm-hmm. And the point of that book is basically answering your question. There's way too much short-sightedness. There's way too much focus on KPIs and short-term gratification for shareholders or for investors and far, far, far too little investment in the future, which means plant, equipment, systems, and people. Mm-hmm. It's it's something that used to be done by well-run companies. You know, if you go back to the old good to great books and books that like that, they um, investing in your people, investing in your company, looking out to the future, envisioning the future the way you think it should look for you as your as your as your company grows, seeking out opportunities, but also you know looking for any threats. And that way, strategically, you can pivot, et cetera, but you can also prepare the team, prepare the company for that eventual successful outcome because you're going to aim there and plan to get there and you're going to invest in getting there. The other element is that there's this confusion that goes on between management and leadership. And in being able, I, I make a distinction that managing is what you do when you've been issued processes, systems, and people, talent, and they're all working according to the... Uh, to the model according to the uh, operating instructions and according to the resume. Mm-hmm. And your job is to tweak and maintain, you know, drop a few drops of oil in once in a while and report what all that is doing. And when it all falls apart or a big part of it falls apart or something challenges it like the pandemic from the outside or mm-hmm. a major competitor does something to change the world, you, you managers can't deal with that. You have to be a leader at that point. You have to step in and rethink and reimagine the new solution, the new processes, what new people do you need and what new talent do you have to have to deal with that, that, um, that event, that risk that came in out of nowhere or, or an internal breakdown. So mm-hmm. those are the two things. I think there, there's not enough leadership training. There's no leadership training basically in business schools. There's no leadership training in most companies. Right. It, it's management training and they call it leadership training. Right. And I, I go back to the scenario based thing, have them, have them make the hard calls, have them, you know, sit down and watch, a hypothetical pandemic or hypothetical product, you know, failure. And then what, what are you going to do about it? Mm-hmm. Very good. The well, good thing I think is the pandemic has shaken everybody out of their 40 hour work week. Yeah. mindset. the old, the old, uh, uh, I guess the, the Protestant work ethic, yeah. you know, that, that America was stuck in for 200 years <laughs> and all the technology that was available before the pandemic hit, you know, cloud-based systems and the ability to, you know, do video teleconferencing and, and work from all kinds of crazy places and still get things done and measure that output. That was all sitting there as like a latent capability. Mm-hmm. And I think what, what the pandemic did is it just smashed open the doors. Right. <laughs> and I don't think we're ever going to go back to that way of working. I think there may be factory workers that may have to, but sure. if you're a knowledge worker, I don't, I don't think we're going back there ever. I, I think, think that's so a good either. thing. It's too easy, too easy to, I can take, you know, I can be on a team's meeting or zoom. I can go to get in my car, pick it up right there, walk into the car and off I go to be wherever you need to be. Yep. 
Good, good. Well, so you got a new book coming out. So you got Be Nimble out now. You got Be Visionary coming out in December. Correct. What else are you up to? I know you consult. I know you do public speaking. How else can people get in touch with you? If you go to MartyStrongBeNimble.com, you'll find my articles, a lot of my podcast interviews. Uh, there's excerpts from the books there and some testimonials, et cetera, for both my public speaking and my uh, and my uh, my books. So, and there's links to the books on there too. I I have nine novels, which I do I do for fun, and really? uh, all the proceeds of those novels are donated to the SEAL Veterans Foundation to help with PTSD and traumatic brain injury. So, that's kind of my my hobby, philanthropic, very you cool. know, fun thing to do. And there's, cool. links, there's links on the same site to those books, too. Very cool. So check him out, MartyStrongBeNimble.com. Uh, looking forward to reading Be Visionary out in December and certainly appreciate you for coming on the podcast. I think there's several things everybody can take away from this. We appreciate your time today. And thanks for having me, Brian. Thanks, Marty. Take care.